You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Freeman, Matt of the Oracle of the Action Network and Rotoviz. Welcome to the August 10th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey man, I'm good. Uh, August 10th, dude. That's like football is right around the corner. It uh, is. How you how are you keeping up with that? <laughs> uh, it's it's keeping up with me. Uh, it's it's good. We have a lot of preseason content going on at Action Network, so uh, I'm I'm very busy with that. But uh, it, it's good to be busy with football instead of busy with other stuff. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's a good time of year. Yeah, and on my end, obviously, uh, doing a lot of the NASCAR stuff, football has kind of come my my back burner thing lately, but uh, I have an interesting Rotoviz football article that I think will be coming out in the next week or so, uh, maybe maybe the next two weeks, and uh, it'll be my first fantasy football article of the offseason, I think, so that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. All right, that's, uh, that's good, but let's talk about some, some NASCAR, of course. Uh, the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series heads to Michigan International Speedway for the second time this year. But before we talk about Michigan, let's look at last weekend's race at Watkins Glen. Chase Elliott scored his first career Cup Series victory after taking advantage of a fueling mistake by Kyle Busch's team and then holding off a late charge by Martin Truex Jr. With a win, Elliott locks himself into the playoffs, which start in mid-September. So we are just four races uh, left in the season. So four races away from the postseason uh let's talk about Watkins Glen uh what can we learn from that race that we can apply moving forward yeah it's just too bad we can't say Chase is in the chase anymore because it's called the it's called the playoffs now but uh yeah um yeah what can we learn I think uh it's it's interesting Chase Elliott has led laps in three races in a row including a significant number in two of those three races so uh is chase elliott back is the team back you know now we come to michigan where he has uh one of the highest average finishes among all drivers here so you know is he back that's that's something you know that remains to be seen is hendrick motorsports back you know jimmy johnson looked really strong before some late race issues uh it's tough to say but michigan of course is a track that'll separate teams uh we'll talk about that of course but yeah, I think one of the things from Watkins Glen we can take away is uh, at least at, at these road courses, there's definitely if if Hendrick isn't back, if the, if the Chevy guys aren't back, then it's definitely still uh, a leveling playing field. These road course races. And we do have one more at, at Charlotte in the playoffs this year. So uh, I think we can take away some information just from Watkins Glen and, and, and also Sonoma. Uh, I think actually Charlotte will be kind of a hybrid of the two. You'll have some fast corners like you do at Watkins Glen because we're racing on the, the Roval, so to speak. But you also have a lot of technical sections because the infield there at uh, Charlotte is pretty tight. So you're not going to have as much high-speed stuff in the infield. So I think it's going to be a good blend of Sonoma and Watkins Glen is kind of my opinion there. So I think we're just going to have to use both Sonoma and Watkins Glen to try to predict what will happen at that future Charlotte race. Uh, other than that, um, you know, I think – Really great weekend for the Road of His DFS readers. Uh, I wrote up Chase Elliott as my favorite GPP play and contrarian dominator, and he ended up doing exactly what we wanted. He hung with Martin Truex Jr. and Kyle Busch, who were the other two favorites, I thought, to uh, to dominate or to, to be the top performers. And 
Um, you know, Elliott was the lowest owned of the three. He was also the cheapest of the three. He won the race and uh, wrote up. We talked about it on the pod last week, fading Kevin Harvick at $12,100 with only a 90 lap race. It didn't make sense to, to really play him. He was 20% owned and uh, those 20% of people were, were in deep trouble there with Kevin Harvick at $12,100. So hopefully you guys faded him. Um, and then the other thing we learned is always those, those updates for these, these impound races with, uh, you know, technical inspection failures. We only had two. So it was actually kind of what I guessed. I said we would have more than we had at Sonoma, which was zero, but I didn't think we'd have like 13, like we had the previous week at Pocono. We did have two. It was Kurt Busch and Paul Menard. It definitely affected the slate dynamics a little bit. Um, but one of the interesting things I think we can take away is, um, I noticed, so, so Kurt Busch and Paul Menard started in the back, made them great plays. They were, you know, two guys who, uh, qualified 14th or 21st or, or 19th or whatever it was, and then had shown some decent speed, not amazing speed, but then both went to the back. We know Kurt Busch is a great road course racer. We know Paul Menard does pretty terribly at Watkins Glen, but still starting dead last. All he could do was go up, and he was a pretty cheap price. But what I said last week with Watkins Glen, you know, the DNF rate, incident rate is about 25%. Maybe you want to discount it to 20 or, or 15% for, you know, Paul Menard and Kurt Busch because they're AKA or, or quote unquote, I should say, uh, better than some of these backmarker cars who might have a higher incident or DNF rate. But, uh, what I noticed is a lot of the, the top fantasy NASCAR players and some of the, the high mass multi-entry guys played both of them in a hundred percent of their lineups and with a, a high incident rate and a low predictability, uh, of the model that I had this past weekend, you know, it was only R squared, like 0. 0.45, 0. 0.46, something like that. It didn't make sense to me to play them 100%. Now, obviously, it was a lot safer, and you're definitely going to get leverage on the field because the field only played Paul Menard in the mid-40%s and Kurt Busch around 50 55%, something like that. You're definitely going to get leverage on them, but you can get leverage on them by playing them 75%, something like that as well, and still leaving yourself opportunities uh, in case something happens to one or the other. Paul Menard had a late rate late race issue. He got a lap down because of, uh, I think it was a tire issue or some damage or something like that. And then uh, got a penalty when a caution came out so that he didn't wasn't allowed to get back in the lead lap, finished back in the 30s, and uh, was not in the winning lineup, not even close to being in the winning lineup. Uh, so that's why you don't play these guys 100%. Um, certainly you can. That's your prerogative. And uh, a lot of the big-name top fantasy NASCAR players did. I just think I would have preferred maybe to play something like 70 to 80% uh, with these guys because we know there is a pretty significant – craziness factor that can happen at Watkins Glen. So going forward, you definitely want to take into account the craziness factor. I mean, look back at what happened at Chicagoland, where it was a very high predictable race, one of the highest we've ever had, uh, and then a very low DNF rate, one of the lowest we've had. I basically only played, I played 150 lineups, but I only played 30 unique lineups or 31 unique lineups and basically duplicated each of them 5X and just made variants off of my top cash game lineup ended up 5Xing the first place in the main GPP. You really want to tailor your strategy to the track at hand. Uh, and so that's a lesson we can use at all tracks, not just the road course races. Okay, let's talk about Michigan. It is a two-mile D-shaped oval. It has a newer track surface than its sister track, Auto Club Speedway. Uh, obviously, we've already had one race there, but talk about the racing we typically see at Michigan. Yeah, it was actually uh, I was pretty excited about the first race at Michigan. If you look at a tweet of mine that I, uh, I have pinned right now to my, my Twitter, uh, I thought the race, the first Michigan race was really good. We had passes for the lead under green and not just the last pass of the race. Well, actually it wasn't even a pass, but, uh, we had passes under the lead 
uh, for the lead under green. We had side-by-side racing in mid-pack. We had uh, some wrecks caused by hard racing. David Reagan was an example. I think there was another one as well. We had some strategy calls because we had some weather. And we had a side-by-side battle for what ended up being the race win. And that's because, you know, the first Michigan race, we did have that weather issue. It got rain-shortened. Clint Boyer took two tires and uh, got the lead, whereas Kevin Harvick started second on four tires. And Boyer was able to hold off teammate Kevin Harvick on two tires versus four, four, four tires. Now, granted, it wasn't a very long run. If the race had run a lot longer, Harvick definitely would have passed uh, Boyer. But they battled side by side. And for a short amount of time, two tires and also just having that, that clean air was enough to hold off four tires. So that was a really good race. Uh, and it shows that, like, if it was Auto Club Speedway and Boyer had taken two tires and Harvick had taken four, there would have been no competition. Harvick would have been gone. And that's how the, the big difference in track surface, you know, really old surface on Auto Club and a much newer surface at Michigan, even though they're both two-mile D-shaped ovals with the same width and uh, pretty close to the same banking, um, the, the track surface makes all the difference. So you can get a lot of side-by-side racing at Michigan, even though um, – you know, even though the, the, the track has a newer surface than Auto Club, uh, and so maybe we'll see some of the same. And especially with, with teams getting desperate, we maybe we'll see some gambles. Maybe we'll also see some, some safe plays by some of the teams that are on the bubble looking at points. You're thinking your your Jimmy Johnsons, your Alex Bowmans. Uh, they're, they're definitely points racing at this point. Uh, you know, they're not looking for a win. They're right on the inside of the playoffs. They don't want to fall out of the playoffs. So you'll see them do some maybe some strategy calls to get some some stage points or some other strategy calls just to uh, try to get the best finishing position possible and play it a little safer. So we're at an interesting point in the season where you have to start thinking about uh, race wins for teams that need to gamble and very in gutsy strategy calls for teams that need to gamble and teams that are closer to the bubble will be more points racing. Uh, and then I, like I said, I think Michigan will produce some good side-by-side racing. I, I hope that we'll see a little bit of what we saw earlier this year. Now, um, obviously with the, the rain and the forecast and temperatures were, or, you know, more cloud cover and temperatures are a little cooler. Uh, that could create a little more wrecks. It depends on what we'll see on Sunday with temperatures and, and the weather forecast. Right now it looks okay, but they have pushed the the weather from Friday to Saturday where there's a, there was a 40% chance early in the week on Friday. As we gotten closer today, the 40% chance got pushed to Saturday. Will they get bumped to Sunday? Who knows? So keep an eye on the weather. A hotter race day means track position will probably be even more important. A cooler race day uh, means it'll be a little less important, more side-by-side racing and more uh, possible wrecks. Can you talk a little bit more about the uh, the Michigan race earlier in the year and uh, any implications it might have for this weekend's race? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the really interesting thing was uh, just looking at you know all of the side-by-side stuff that that we saw, and uh, there wasn't. It's funny, there wasn't a huge DNF number. Uh, Only two of the 39 cars had a DNF or a major incident. So when we look at that, it's actually a pretty low major incident rate. But we also had some other spin-outs and things like that uh, that didn't get quite counted as major incidences. Um, You know, for example, Daniel Suarez had had some minor things happen there, and he he finished a lap down in in 30th place. But uh, 
I mean, I think the big takeaway is, um, you know, just looking at the dominators and the stages, and, and this is really, you know, kind of something we can talk about with with all of the stage races that we've had at Michigan. Is is just looking at the dominators. Uh, is it sustainable to have only two or three dominators or one dominator in your lineup this weekend? Um, the other thing, of course, is just the side by side racing. And I think that's relative to the temperatures. Uh, we want to keep an eye on the weather forecast this weekend. Uh, warmer temperatures, like I said, will mean fewer, probably fewer incidences. And uh, cooler temperatures will probably mean a little bit more. Now, we got some really fast speeds in Michigan this weekend. Danny Hamlin won the pole at 202 plus miles per hour. Uh, so, definitely important and one of the other things you'll see at michigan uh is you just get this separation of speed you know all the big name teams and drivers finished at the top in the first race uh at michigan this year and then the second race or or i should say and then the the mid-tier drivers and teams kind of finish in mid-pack and then lower and lower right so i think like your top maybe like mid mid team or driver was like jamie mcmurray in around 10th place you know chase elliott pulled off a ninth but it's a really good track for him he was probably more mid-tier early in the year and then after that, you know, your next mid-tier driver was probably uh, William Byron in 13th or something like that. And so none of the mid-tier drivers really pushed up inside that top eight or anything like that, even with weather and strategy and things like that. So you do get a separation of speeds here at Michigan just because of the the vast, huge two-mile track. It's wide, it's banked, uh, and you get massive speeds here. Okay, so assuming that uh, there are no weather issues on Sunday, it looks like we have the first, you know, quote-unquote normal weekend in a while uh, can you talk about the content schedule? Yeah, well, a normal weekend means, thankfully, a normal content schedule. Uh, practice is is very early. Uh, I think it's something like 8.30 Eastern time is the first Saturday practice. So uh, I'm not waking up at 5.30 in the morning to watch practice. Sorry, guys, especially opening practice. But second practice will be, uh, you know, at a relatively decent time. I'll wake up for for second practice. I'll watch the whole thing. Uh, and that should be over around 9:30. Immediately after that, I'm gonna go right into content mode. Should have everything everything ready by uh, so 9:30 for me, uh, I should say, which is about 12:30 East Coast time. So everything will be done by 9:30 in the morning for me, 12:30 Eastern time in terms of on-track activity. I'm gonna go right to work on the content and uh, hopefully have everything out before noon uh, Pacific time, so 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, with the article, the apps, and so forth. Then uh, we'll take a little bit of a break, and uh, later in the evening, as usual, I will record, record Road of His Live, so make sure you get your your questions in uh, on Twitter using hashtag RVLive. Um, I'll probably record that around 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Hope to have that posted shortly after 10 p.m. Eastern, something like that, on roadofhis.com slash live. Uh, and then after that, it's, it's basically just checking for Sunday morning updates, so pretty normal content schedule this weekend, thankfully. Okay, so for everyone who wants to check out that content, uh, you can get a special listeners-only discount uh, at the NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content, and your subscription supports the pod. I believe that discount is uh, the remainder of the season for just a little under $50, right, Nick? Like some, like 48? Yeah, 49, 49, 48. Yeah. One of those numbers. I, I forget the exact number. It's been a couple weeks since I said it, but yep. Okay. So uh, that's a special discount. On top of that, uh, if you are subscribing to the NASCAR package, uh, you have access to a lot of great tools and data. Uh, with all the research you're doing, you should place some NASCAR bets at mybookie.ag. They have a variety of future bets and head-to-head props for each race. Uh, and I bet the props at my bookie each week, 
Uh, everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm pretty much a NASCAR donkey. Uh, but because of the NASCAR tools at Rotoviz, I actually managed to do okay with the head-to-head props. Uh, so if I can do it, you can do it, and you should consider doing it at mybookie.ag. If you join now, they will match your deposit with a 50% bonus uh, with the promo code NASCAR. Uh, so visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, and you get paid. Okay, Nick, back to Michigan. Only 200 laps, so the importance of dominators is reduced relative to uh, the larger races. So what kind of roster construction uh, typically tends to win at Michigan? Yeah, it's interesting. Even though we only have uh, 200 laps, Michigan has been one of those tracks where we've seen uh, a, a wide variety of, of number of dominators that can end up in the winning lineup. So just looking at the stage era, which is, of course, last year and then the first Michigan race this year. So the two Michigan races last year, first Michigan race this year, the first Michigan race last year, uh, there were three major dominators. Kyle Larson led 48 percent of the laps. Martin Truex Jr. led 31 percent of the laps and Kyle Busch led 20 percent of the laps. 20% doesn't sound like a lot. It's still it's only 40 laps, which is 10 DraftKings points, but he also had 32 fastest laps. So add those 16 DraftKings points and he had 26 DraftKings points just from dominator points. Uh, he finished, he started fourth, finished seventh. So while that doesn't seem super great, you know, 37 minus three is 34 points for finishing position and plus place differential. So 34 points, you add those 26 in. 60 points. Kyle Busch wasn't priced over 11,000 last year. So, you know, you're, you're talking over uh, 5x value for, for Kyle Busch last year. Um, that was enough for three dominators to, to have a chance at the winning lineup. Uh, then the second race last year, we only saw two dominators. It was Keselowski and Truex. Uh, Keselowski led 52% of the race, 105 laps. And then Truex led six, or sorry, 57% of the race and finished second. Now, Kyle Larson snuck out the win there, leading only two laps. But uh, yeah, so that was a two-dominator race with with Kyle Larson factoring into the winning lineup as well, starting ninth and finishing first. Uh, then the first race this year, we had two major dominators, Harvick and Kurt Busch. Both led around 35% of the laps. Um, Harvick doubled Kurt Busch in the number of fastest laps. Uh, after that, um, Ryan Blaney did, did put up, uh, let's see, 12 plus plus four. He did put up just under 16, 15.75 dominator points, started ninth, finished eighth, which was good enough to get him uh, right near the winning lineup. Uh, so, you know, two, three tends to be the way to go. If you look prior to the, uh, you know, the, the era of, of stages, we see the same thing. The first 2016 race was Logano and Elliott who led 69 and 18% of the laps respectively. Uh, but the second race at Michigan in 2016 was really interesting. We had uh, a bunch of drivers lead over 10% of the race. We had J- uh, Kyle Larson at 20%, Jimmy Johnson at 18%, Kevin Harvick at 16%, Elliott at 15%, Logano at 12%. Then we even had Keselowski led 14 laps, which is 7% of the race. Uh, only Joey Logano didn't get double-digit fastest laps of those drivers I just named, including Keselowski. So it was really spread out. So in that case, it was probably more like a three-dominator race you would play in DraftKings, especially given the finishing position. So two is in threes is what I think, even though we only have 200 laps, I'd lean more towards twos. 
some of these third dominators can end up in the winning lineup if they put up some positive place differential. So mostly twos and then and then some threes. And then after that, it's the standard combination of place differential and finishing position uh, with more emphasis on finishing position just because, as we'll talk about, uh, this is a race where a lot of separation of speed. So you also get, uh, you know, I think finishing position and starting position correlate a lot more. So place differential just the overall place differential that actually happens is less. Now, however, what that does mean, if you do get a driver that gets big place differential, it's very likely he'll end up in the winning lineup. But we do want to place a premium on finishing position this weekend. Okay, so what stats are you consulting to determine uh, who is likely to dominate at Michigan? Uh, so dominators, definitely starting position factors in. That's one of the most important factors in the model, both for fastest laps and laps led. Uh, then after that, it's your it's kind of your typical combination of year-to-date dominator performance and track-type dominator performance. So for the laps led, both year-to-date laps led and fastest laps show up, and track-type fastest laps and track-type laps led show up. So that's for laps led. For, for fastest laps, it's basically the same except uh, you remove – you remove uh, just the overall um, laps led. You mostly just look at fastest laps year to date and track type fastest laps. You also can add in some driver rating there this year as well. But but starting position heavily factors in, and then just dominator performance this year and large ovals will generally get you in the good direction for both laps led and fastest laps. Okay, finishing position. What are the stats that are important? Yeah, this is a super simple model this weekend, and I love it. The simpler, the better. You're looking at your 10-lap average. Now, Michigan is a two-mile track, so we don't get as many drivers that post 10-lap averages when the track is very big uh, just because it takes a lot more time to make a lap, and so you get fewer drivers that make 10-lap averages. Other than that, you can use what we call the combined average practice speed. We've talked about this before. Average the fastest lap from each practice session for all the drivers. We have three practice sessions this weekend, the first one on Friday, and then the two on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it's your choice if you want to average all three of them or just the two post-qualifying ones. I think the two post-qualifying ones are more reliable. But because qualifying and practice and correlate a lot more at a big track like Michigan where you get a separation of speeds, I actually think it's better to pull in all three this weekend and average all three single-lap practice speeds for those drivers that don't make a 10-lap average. Um, the other thing is, of course, make sure you watch final practice NBC Sports has been showing average practice speed over the whole final practice session. So if your driver doesn't make 10 laps average, but he does post 12 laps, you know, maybe he does an eight lap stint and a four lap stint, it'll show his average practice speed over those 12 total laps. So that's a kind of a data point we can use subjectively as we've been talking about, because it's not a data point we have historically going back for all of the NASCAR races. So um, that's just something you're going to have to kind of have to use to tweak your rankings after you know the model comes out or, or you add in your own subjective opinions or things like that, that's another subjective piece of data you can add in there. Uh, so that's the main piece of data point is, of course, practice. It shows up in all the top models. Year-to-date driver rating shows up in all the top models. So how has a driver performed this year? And then track type performance driver rating and fastest laps. So not lap slide, but fastest laps. That shows which drivers are fast at the large ovals this year. Track type driver rating, track type fastest laps uh, will be the model for this weekend. Okay. Uh, you've mentioned the model. How accurate is it? And uh, I, I guess bigger question, how accurate was it for the first Michigan race? Yeah. So um, first Michigan race, it wasn't quite as accurate as normal, but that a little bit had to do with the weather, the, the strategy that came into the end there. But it was you know, still quite accurate. It was around 055 
overall dating uh, back to the start of 2016, which is uh, two races in 2016, two races in 2017, and the first 2018 races, a five-race sample size, which is pretty big. You know, it gives us around uh, ballpark 200 cars, less the drivers that didn't finish, so 160 cars, something like that. Um, it, it, it is actually still a pretty accurate model, around 0.61. Not on the higher end, of course, where we see the 0.63s, 5s, 6s, 7s, and, and especially tracks like Chicagoland and Richmond were above 0.7. Um, not on the higher end, but definitely not on the lower end as well. Like we've seen the 0.58s or 5.5s or, or things like that. Or, or for example, Watkins Glen last week, which is a point, what was it? 4.6 or, or Bristol, which we'll go to next weekend, which is pretty low. Uh, Michigan's right around the middle. Uh, but, uh, yeah, obviously the first race was a little affected by the weather and the strategy calls at the end of there, but you can get some strategy at Michigan anyway. And, and sometimes even some fuel mileage concerns at Michigan, less so in the stage era than in the past, but, but still very much possible. Uh, so I actually think overall, if we take the, the, the 16, 17 and 18, the lower downforce era of these cars, uh, and, and look at those, you know, five races sample size I actually think that's a pretty good sample size overall to represent the you know the range of outcomes and average outcome at michigan what is the uh the average incident rate in michigan uh so pretty low actually um i was i was surprised to see this uh i thought it maybe more around the, the 10 to you know 15 percent something like that but since 2016 in the low downforce era it has only been 8.7 percent incident rate so less than 10 percent We've got, I think it's uh, 39 cars starting this weekend. I need to, to double check that. Um, but yeah, I think we got 39, 40 cars starting this weekend, actually. Daniel Suarez is in 40th. Uh, so with 40 cars, if you take a 10% incident rate, that's about four cars that have major incidents. So you, you can expect on average three to four. Some races, it's been one or two. We've had a couple of those. And some races, it's been you know five or six or even seven. But uh, on average, we can expect around four cars to have an incident, give or take you know, I'd say two to three cars from that average. Okay. So it's been a while since we've had a normal schedule. Uh, but because of that, we're actually able to dive into some of the early picks. Uh, qualifying has already happened. So as a reminder, these picks are made before the two practices on Saturday. So of course they are subject to change, but that said, uh, who are your top picks right now to dominate in Michigan? Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, Denny Hamlin qualified on the pole uh, and was the fastest in opening practice as well. And obviously, um, that doesn't mean a whole lot with only a few laps run and uh, some of those being qualifying trim. So Denny Hamlin uh, starts in the pole. Kyle Busch starts second. Kevin Harvick starts third. You'd expect it to come from that range of drivers. Harvick clearly had the best car in the first Michigan race. So Barring, you know, seeing the two practice sessions, I'd have to give the nod to Harvick. That said, Kyle Busch does start right next to his teammate, Denny Hamlin. There is a chance that, you know, if they work together, they'll let Denny Hamlin get out front and, and Kyle Busch could hold off Harvick. So either Hamlin or Kyle Busch could lead pretty quickly if Hamlin's able to hold off Busch and Harvick or if Busch is able to get around Hamlin after they maybe work together in the opening start. I do know one thing is, you know, maybe people will be like, oh, well, Kyle Busch will let Denny Hamlin have it or they'll work together. Or whatever. No, Kyle Busch is going to want that playoff point for winning the opening stage. He's going to be trying to lead. So will Kevin Harvick. So I expect my, you know, my, my preferred order right now is Kevin Harvick one, Kyle Busch two, Denny Hamlin three. I'm very much subject to change based off of what we see in practice. But uh, I don't think just because Hamlin's on the pole and the teammates are starting in the front, they'll work together and somehow magically Hamlin will be, you know, leading the first 20, 30 laps or whatever. No, I expect 
Kyle Busch and Kevin Hart to go for those playoff points. Every playoff point matters to make sure you get to Homestead. Okay. Uh, outside of the Dominators, who are the drivers you like for cash games? Yeah, actually, I think this is a really interesting week for cash games because I, I don't know. I mean, do you even have to play a Dominator in cash game with only – uh, with only 200 laps and not knowing which of these drivers might end up dominating, especially because we got some really nice place differential plays this weekend. We talked about Daniel Suarez starting 40th. Uh, he actually has a really good car. He was third fastest in opening practice, was pretty happy with it. But in qualifying trim, they got super loose and he uh, ended up uh, you know, getting the wall a little bit. They are fixing the car, so they're probably going to be using the primary car, at least as of last update. Uh, either way, whether they go to the primary or the backup, they'll be starting 40th place from DraftKings purposes and starting in the rear uh, for you know, practical purposes anyway. But that makes them a great play for cash games. Then there's a lot of other cash game plays. I think is it's going to be interesting how we separate this out. Clint Boyer in 16th, Kyle Larson starting 17th, Brad Keselowski starting 18th, Chase Elliott starting 21st. Uh, especially given Chase Elliott's history here at Michigan and how he's been really good the last three races, leading laps in each of them, including dominating portions of two of them. Uh, you know, I think um, I think it's it's really a big question of what of those drivers I just named do you use in cash? And does trying to fit in a dominator in there affect your cash game lineup as well? You also need to be a bit price sensitive. Uh, for example, Kyle Larson, much more expensive than Brad Keselowski and Clint Boyer, who are in turn more expensive than Chase Elliott. Well, Elliott starts a little further back. Um, you know, it's really going to be hard to separate. I think a lot of it, of course, will come down to practice, but I think a lot of it is also being price sensitive and then just trying a lot of different cash game combinations and figuring out what you're most comfortable with. I think it's a great cash game weekend because there's going to be a lot of different lineups, even though it's going to be five on fives because everybody's going to be playing Suarez. I think we're going to see a lot of different five on fives and cash games this weekend. And the bulk of them will come from those drivers that I had just named. The question is, do you end up trying to throw in a dominator as well? Somebody like a Harvick or a Kyle Busch. Uh, into your cash game lineup as well. Um, only 200 laps. It's not like we've got 267 or 334 like we often see with some of these mile and a halfs or four or 500 like you see at some of the shorter tracks. Only 200. So it makes me lean more towards a place differential lineup this week, and especially with the fact that Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick are so expensive. You got Kevin Harvick 12,200. Uh, you got Kyle Busch 11,900. Maybe makes me lean a mil- little more towards the place differential position lineup however uh it is a pretty predictable race and uh the dominators are are very often the ones starting up front so i could see multiple constructions working this weekend uh gonna be really interesting based off how practice shakes out i think that'll really define how we attack cash games this weekend okay and who are your top gpp picks for the race um i got a couple interesting ones circled here so I think there's some contrarian appeal in Ryan Blaney starting eighth. He's only $8,700. If you look at the large ovals this year, uh, he's got one of the better dominator performances outside of obviously the big three and Kyle Larson. Uh, Blaney has actually led the next most laps at the large ovals. Um, then uh, you look at uh, Kurt Busch and another Ford. Kurt Busch is currently fourth overall in points this year um, in, in the NASCAR cup standings. So he's, he's locked into the playoffs. Uh, you know, he starts 12th, so there's some place differential potential there for Kurt Busch. He dominated earlier this year at a portion of the Michigan race. Uh, he's, relatively speaking, he's cheap. Uh, I mean, you look at these other guys that I was mentioning with, you know, 12,200, 11,900. You got Kurt Busch down here. He's priced cheap. 
cheaper than Blaney at $8,400. Price cheaper than Chase Elliott. Price cheaper than Jimmy Johnson. Uh, so I do like Kurt Busch with some contrarian appeal starting 12th. I think a lot of the ownership percentage is going to go to those guys I mentioned starting 16th through, you know, through 19th and then, and then also 21st in Chase Elliott. Uh, so I think two good names right there. And then a cheaper price name starting 14th. Paul Menard, uh, if we remove DNFs from this year's large oval races, Paul Menard has an average finish position of 11.8. So that means there's been times he's finished better than 11.8, obviously. If he pulls off a top 10 finish starting 14th, you know, that's, let's say he even finishes 10th. That's 34 points plus four points. That's 38 points. Uh, then you've got uh, his price tag here uh, at $7,200. That's right around 5X. I think there's some ceiling there for Paul Menard above 5X, which could sneak him into the winning lineup. Now, obviously, you've got Daniel Suarez at $7,800, who's going to be very heavily owned, chalky, uh, the chalk play of the weekend. And he won't be owned enough, as we always see with these guys starting in the back. They're around 60%, maybe 65% max owned. I love Daniel Suarez at around 80% ownership this weekend, given the DNF uh, rate. You know, if you're going to multi-enter, uh, 80, even maybe up to 85% owned. I wouldn't go 100%, obviously. Things can happen. But uh, I do think Paul Menard is a very interesting play with, uh, you know, only $7,200. If he pulls off a ninth or an eighth place finish, has a chance at being in the winning lineup. You could even play him with Daniel Suarez. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think he's, he's necessarily a smash play, but I think, uh, you know, his ownership could be pretty low. Given that we also, you know, see William Byron there at $6,800 starting 20th. I don't think he's going to be as good. Uh, I don't see many other great plays in this this Paul Menard price range. Maybe Jamie McMurray starting 15th. But, uh, yeah, I kind of like Paul Menard and GPPs this weekend as well. Okay, and then uh, finally, I don't know if there are any Joe Dirt cheap drivers uh, for this week because there's the low DNF rate. But if there are, who are they? Yeah, I think uh, with the low DNF rate, obviously you can get away from the Joe Dirt cheap drivers a lot more. Um, I think one of the things that we also need to consider is the separation of speed. So like, I kind of look at this in tiers. Like Chase Elliott starting in 21st basically ends like kind of a tier of drivers. Then you've got 22nd through 29th, I think is like another tier of drivers. I could basically see any of these guys finishing ahead of any of these other guys. That's Bubba Wallace, Chris Buescher, David Reagan, AJ Allmendinger, Trevor Bain, Ty Dillon, Casey Kane, and Michael McDowell in order starting 22nd through 29th. Uh, there wasn't much speed differential between them and qualifying doesn't look like to be much between them in practice. Maybe you can use a little bit of track history or type history or or year to date performance to separate them out a little bit. So I kind of look at them as a tier. And if you look at DraftKings pricing, um, they're basically the same. They're all in the same tier together. You got Ty Dillon all the way up to, uh, you know, Casey Kane, 6,500, Ty Dillon, 5,700, that tier. And then all the other drivers I just mentioned are, are in the same price range as well. Uh, so um, I kind of look at them as a tier of drivers. After that is our air quote Joe Dirt cheap tier, $5,500 and less. And it's kicked off by Ross Chastain, who will be starting 35th. Uh, I love Ross Chastain as the Joe Dirt cheap driver this weekend. He wasn't in the car for qualifying, uh, but he will be in the car for the race, I believe. So uh, if that ends up being the case, we see him you know, uh, end up in the race car. He's he's just had some good avoidance of DNFs this year uh, and has gained some places. He should gain some places from his 35th place starting position. And if there is maybe a little higher than average DNF rate, you could sneak in some some uh, Ross Chastain. But uh, I don't think it's a weekend where you have to drop down of Joe Dirt as much given the massive separation of speed. These guys are going to be multiple laps down. I mean, you look at their their qualifying times, rack, relative, or sorry, yeah, qualifying times relative to some of these top tier drivers. Like even Daniel Suarez, 
who didn't put up a qualifying lap, if we give them, you know, a, a 12th place starting position, which is Kurt Busch range, that's around uh, 36 seconds per lap um, ballpark, you know, ballpark 36 seconds per lap in qualifying trim. You're looking at guys like even the best of the best in this tier, Landon Castle around 37 seconds. So a full second difference uh, just for like a mid-tier driver like Daniel Suarez, maybe a mid-upper tier driver like Daniel Suarez uh, to, to a upper tier Joder like Landon Castle. Now you go to the lower Joder tier, you got drivers making 39 and a half, 39 upper 38 second qualifying laps versus you know, drivers making mid 35s in the top tier. So you get a massive separation of speed, three seconds per lap. Uh, so you really aren't going to be using a lot of Joder this weekend. But if you do, I think it has to come from from Ross Chastain. And then that, that tier right there that I mentioned, that McDowell through like Bubba Wallace tier, I think is where maybe a GPP could be won this weekend. So trying to figure out uh, which of these drivers you want to play. And I think some of it could just come down to leveraging ownership percentages in this tier um, and uh, also being a little bit price sensitive in that tier. Okay. Uh, final reminder, what time is RV Live? Uh, so I'll be recording RV Live around 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Should be posted to rotaviz.com slash live a little after 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, which is 7 p.m. Pacific time. Standard standard deal to be behind the paywall at rotaviz.com slash live. Okay. And uh, one more reminder, everyone. You can get the NASCAR discount at NASCAR, uh, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast for some uh, indefinite amount of money in the range of 48 to uh, $50. Okay. That's going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS.